namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sammuttassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sammuttassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sammuttassa buddhang dhammang sanghang sanghi said before the you know meditation exercises are really like a <coughs> particular um, you know, perform a particular function in the whole cultivation of, of mind and um, one has to also recognize that they can the way that we handle them the way we consider them or the feedback that we derive from them can actually go against the cultivation of mind as if we get into the success failure um, you know syndromes that come up with most of our efforts and activities then you know this is kind of worldly um, stuff that isn't really in line with the true cultivation of Dhamma mm. yeah. and this is the kind of um, this is the cul-de-sac that we get to um, and it, it's, you know, of course, sometimes perhaps depending on how long we're doing it or what factors are going for us, we do get these rather nice periods, successes, and so on. And sometimes it, 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 the, 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 then the less glorious times seem even more disappointing. Mm. You know, so this is a kind of continual challenge, you know, for us. Can can we somehow acknowledge this uh, and not uh, deny it, and yet not be get feel you know despondent by that? So this is like a challenge for us to really deepen our refuge in our whole understanding of what cultivation of dhamma can is supposed to be about. Mm. 
And for this it's really important, something I've been emphasizing a lot, it becomes more and more significant and clear in my own understanding the importance of of refuge. So, (coughs) refuge as a as a a way in which as a reference that we have, uh, I call it sometimes a a tonal reference to particular, apart from whatever external things we take refuge in, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, uh, our our virtues, whatever, um, our friends, whatever kind of holds us there, the very fact of being held at a place where we feel uplifted, um, open, trusting, um, with some confidence, some sense that we're not just battling on our own, we're, we're in something that can, can, can carry us, you know, and not, it's neither entirely independent of us, you know, it's, it's because we are, in a way, tuning into that, so it, it's not something that's just kind of, you do happens anyway, you know, you have to in a way somewhere apply yourself. And yet, of course it's not something that you can say is entirely your own construction either. It's something that you you foster by attention, by recognizing it in people around you, the you know, quality of goodness and generosity, uh, which you can ignore. Uh, the quality of goodness in yourself which you can ignore. Um, the the sense of recollecting the tradition and the great beings who, who, who we have taught us and so forth. All these things can build up a sense of refuge, but of course one has to, has to apply oneself to it and remember it and not feel overawed by it all, you know, like they're so great and I'm so pathetic, but actually, you know, acknowledging that, that goodness in them is something I can resonate with myself. Mm. You know, maybe I'm not like really up there with the greats, but I, I, can, I honour those particular values. Mm. You know, and they mean something to me. So you could, something lifts your mind up. And, and so precepts, of course, are a big part of that, keeping precepts and remembering them, remembering that one has kept them, remembering that one has tried to keep them. And if one has made a mistake, acknowledging that and trying to understand what happened and then trying to pick oneself back up. So you come to this kind of sense which is felt, felt sense of like a tonal brightness, the upright mind, mm. you know, in which even when we, we make mistakes, we've got something we can refer to, to come back to, you know, rather than just going into despair and despond. You know, no, that wasn't skillful. This is, this is the, what it feels like. You know. So you don't go into guilt, you go into acknowledgement and then re-establishing that. You know. So there's a certain humility about it as well. Mm. And this is, <coughs> so you establish a particular tonal, um, um, you can say a mental state, but it's, it's also something that has a, a particular, like a physical effect uh, in terms of one's sense of composure or a carefulness in terms of bodily action and what the verbal uh, effect too, in terms of one's ways of speaking, addressing uh, others, mm. and thinking, you know, what, we, what we consider, what we think about, and the ways we think, 
you know, we think perhaps more in terms of is this really worthy of me? Is this really helpful? Rather than you know, we don't, we've got this recollection you know, because you recognise that if you carry on with unskillful thinking, the mind starts to get out of tune. You know, it gets dreary and sloppy or reckless or feverish or guilty. It loses its tone. So, we keep acknowledging that particular sense of the upright mind. And this, I feel, is is really important as a basis for every other, for all the what we call meditation practices, and something that one's never, um, should never miss out on. Because because what we are looking at in terms of Dhamma practice is really like handling and um, getting past the attachment to particular productions, conditioned productions, uh, say things that we come into contact with, things that are temporary that we come into contact with, that that move us, that we stick to, that we get reactive to. And so because these are actually all you know, temporary and um, not giving us long-lasting value, the idea is that we could really be able to not get stuck on all this stuff. I'm called the, the allaying of conditions or seeing through conditions. But and these occur in, in three levels, if you like. There's both bodily and mental. So the, the, the obvious level of condition is just kind of apparently you know, independent phenomena such as external sensed objects, you know, sights and sounds, things we see and hear and touch and taste, um, things we can think about. You know, they're out there and we can get, um, and we, they contact us and then we, we hear something, we hear some news. Um, or we touch something, or we see something. These kind of things that have seem definitely objective, independent existence in in the ordinary ordinary view of things, anyway. And so we've got to somehow ne- negotiate with all that, the things that contact us, both bodily and mental. And the second level is, is subtler, but it's it's another level of contact which is more more internal, which is say the, the bodily um, like you know bodily energies, uh, hormonal things, illness, um, you know the, the internal aspects of how the body is affected when we feel bright or sleepy, hungry, tired, you know these bodily effects. These are these are not really to do with objects out there, like like you know something I'm touching, which would be uncomfortable, but but the general feeling internally, you know, which is affected by the body's metabolism and so forth. And then on the mental level, this kind of subtler level of things is more like the moods and the emotions that we have, the internal mental processes that are going on, whether there's anything to literally think about or not, we still think. You know. If there's anything we have to apply our minds to, they still go on, whirring away, mulling things over. So you get this kind of internal, we call internal contact, 
And these are the two most obvious levels of conditions, and they have their effects. <coughs> There's a third level, which is subtler still, which actually deals with, with things that don't uh, have an existence, <laughs> or don't have much of an objective existence. And these are more notional things, like, um, yeah, um, yeah, like views, uh, opinions, how I feel, how I, my sense of self, you know, which although it, it becomes a very important thing for us, we can never really locate it or find where it is or say what it is. It just keeps, it, it haunts us. Um, in terms of the body, it can be one sense of bodily presence, whether we feel safe, you know, which is not really a, anything you can exactly put your finger on, but you can feel safe or welcome or or okay, or anything like that, where you actually feel your, your bodily presence, which is something that, you know, has quite a profound effect on us. And it's not to do purely with the, uh, you know, the other two levels can affect that, of course, the physical contact or the internal thing. And yet you can be physically uncomfortable and yet feel quite, you know, okay in yourself physically. Your presence is there. You can feel when you you can feel ill and yet feel quite cheerful in yourself. The things that really affect that are feeling, um, you know, unwelcome, unloved, threatened, uh, despised, or anything like that. You get a sense in which the body doesn't feel very good um, in terms of its presence. So that sense, you know, the bodily thing. And I think this is one of the. I think it, like what what I find so kind of delightful about clowns, for example, is their ability to com- make complete fools of themselves physically. You know, fall into buckets of water, get whitewashed, tipped over their heads, have big red noses, look completely ridiculous, get custard slapped down their trousers, <laughs> and all that, and, and and not not get you know, depressed by it all, they came out bouncing around. And so now we, we watch that, we feel a sense of relief that somebody's sense of self isn't being, you know, destroyed. Like, you know, if, if a clown got a slip of a banana skin and then went into a trauma about it, <laughs> you probably wouldn't find it very amusing. <laughs> but because he just kind of bounces back again, or, you know, with <coughs> so, you know, where most of us would probably well, you know, you came in and slipped a banana skin. We laughed at you. You feel slightly hurt by that. You know, particularly if somebody did it deliberately. You know, you lost your sabong or something, <laughs> walked into the door. <laughs> you know, what's actually happened to your body? Nothing, really. You know. But one's sense of bodily presence has been deeply shocked. <laughs> Uh, you know, imagine giving a talk, a uh, public talk, when you've got a smut on your nose or something <laughs> like that. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you feel like you feel very embarrassed. So that that's an example of this, this kind of subtle level of bodily presence, which is very important for us, and we probably don't really acknowledge it except when it's when it's gone, when it's damaged. And yet, quite a bit of our life is spent just trying to make ourselves feel okay in that way. If we don't feel like, go, 
that way, then this this is another level of conditionality where we clung, cling to. And in fact, it, it's it's subtle, but it's really the most important. The rest of it can go, and if you've got this one going, then you feel all right, even though it's kind of nebulous, it's the most important. Similarly, on the mental level, this, this, uh, and it's not really internal or external, because it can be set up by other external conditions, you know, like you've got, maybe you fond of nice clothes, because you're wearing nice clothes, you feel, you feel confident, you know, so people like to do that, or makeup, you know, so they feel confident. So it can be something really external to the body, because you feel fit, you know, you feel confident. But, so it can be either because of something purely external to the, to the body itself, or internal. But, so it's neither, it's kind of an over thing. That, that covers both of that. And this is perhaps the most tenacious and subtle but, but deeply held form of conditioned attachment the body as myself. And similarly with the mind, you know, where we, so the, you, know, you have the, the internal aspects of the mind, its, it's moods and thoughts and so forth. But um, beyond that, the overall sense of feeling one is a successful person or a liked person or is you know this kind of quality of of um, feeling okay with oneself you know, which again is um, <coughs> you know is, is the most important thing for us so you know when you you can uh, the rest of it uh, is less important. So you can make a complete fluff up of the evening chanting. And if you don't, if it doesn't bother you, that's, it can be just left there, can't it? Just the behavior thing, you know, the memory goes on occasions. Uh, and that's the way it is, you know. So that piece of mental behavior we don't have to attach to. Um, and then we, can, we can still feel welcome, okay, you know, fine to be here. Or we might make a big thing out of it and feel terribly embarrassed and awkward and, and fearful and stupid, so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So depending, you know, that that so the you know, this this subtle level of 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 mental conditionality, which again is to do with um, sense of self. It can be our confidence, our dignity, our feeling of being welcome, and so on. This is really what the refuge helps to, you know, is, is applying to, because it's the place of our values also. Um, you know, we feel doing the right thing. They're sort of stored up. Um, perceptions of what that is, you know, which may be intelligence or ability to to, to perform or to do particular things, you know, and then we feel okay. Yeah. And, but then this is, of course, where our inability to meditate, <laughs> or, or our seeming inability to meditate, or our occasional inability to med- meditate, it sticks in there, doesn't it? No, not very good. So then, that sense of that, you know, aggravates that particular conditioned basis, and the tonality of brightness or uplift 
dwindles, you know, disappointed, depressed. So then, in that state, because you haven't got that sense of, you know, uplift, it's it's really difficult to, to, to to take the process of of mental of dhamma cultivation into meditation. (coughs) You don't actually have the the uplifted state to act as a basis for your uh, for your mindfulness. So that's very significant, actually, because the the what the refuge does, or what it's catalyzing, is a particular um, deals with a particular um, problem that comes up when we're facing you know, conditioned processes. You know. Either external, or internal, gross, or subtle, which is stuff is co- seems to be coming at us, and we're being perhaps, uh, and if we, and our normal response is either to block it, you know, to block it, or um, get out, change direction. You know. So if you're physically uncomfortable, then shift. Feel a bit tired, have a nap. Um, getting bored, do something. Uh, feeling a bit restless, go and jog around, you know. So one is normal response to this kind of conditioned process of what the body's bringing up, whether it feels bright or strong or vigorous or weak, whether the mind feels, you know, charged up or flat, is to is to react to it. We can either try and suppress it, block it, or we shift. We, we shift ground. So that one is actually, you know, Reacting, uh, reacting in terms of conditions, either reacting by following them, or we just put up an attempt to try and suppress them all. And maybe that's kind of what we do when we when we meditate. Is we you know, avoid. We know we shouldn't shift around or you know these things. So instead, we perhaps try and block everything, block things. Um, and this itself again is of limited use because it doesn't provide the uplifted um, base for mindfulness. Now what the uplifted base does is it enables one to, to contemplate the conditioned process from a slightly different vantage point. So it's imagine, um, uh, imagining like we're standing in the street, a lot of stuff is running towards us and it's kicking up dust and so on. It seems completely dense mm-hmm. and overwhelming. Then imagine if we're instead of standing in the street, we're standing you know, on a building 50 foot up looking at it. You wouldn't feel so bothered anymore. And you look down, you could see the spaces in between the people and things. When you're down on the ground, it just looks like a solid wall. When you're a bit up, you can see perhaps the gaps in between people in the crowd or whatever's running towards you. So you don't feel so bothered by it. Um, you can you both feel not involved, and also you can see the, the the relativity of that experience. You can see the gaps in it. This is kind of what we do uh, our, when we um, you. Know, are contemplating or regarding conditioned experiences from the point of view of the refugees. You've got, you've got a tonal base 
where you can, oh, this is, you know, the mood of the mind is like this. Mm. The physical energies are like this. You know, the throbbing goes like this. And instead of it all compacting together into this, this most crucial conditions uh, element, which is I am, you know, we keep that free. So, so the, the pain is not happening to me, it's happening to the body, or the mind is doing this, it's not me doing it. And of course, you can parrot these phrases, but it doesn't actually work by, by knowing the lingo or getting the jargon right. You've actually got to be in, in that refuge place in order to, to really sense that and feel that. And you only sense it and feel it because, in fact, your the third level of conditionality is actually being held in a refuge place. So, say you know one's heart is in the triple gem to give it a kind of devotional um, language. So this is, of course, is a process and a challenge for us to keep doing that. And uh, uh, you know what we are, uh, what gives us confidence in that, what we're encouraged to to to, to experience in that, to to develop that, or to you know, so it's both, if you like, a causal in teaching. You know that is um, look out for these particular signs. It will help you to to stay in the refuge, and also it's a result of staying in the refuge, you actually do experience this, and what you experience is the, what's called the anicca, or the, the variable, inconstant nature of conditions. And that, again, is something one can learn by heart, and doesn't really mean very much, till you really experience a painful thought come and go without really doing anything about it, apart from getting out of the way, or um, not attaching to it, or reacting to it. And then, oh, so actually that was better than blocking it, or running away from it, or acting upon it. You know, the result is one's, you know, the, the subsiding of a condition tends to, you know, in its subsiding you find you're, you're in that you go into that refuge place. You settle into a, perhaps for a moment, into a place which just feels open, bright, free. It may only last for a hair's breadth of time before the next thing comes up. But you know, one is beginning to just at least get the system, even if your thinking can't acknowledge it, get the system to acknowledge it. So that in time, one's emotional reactions just get less and less ex- intense and exaggerated and heightened around conditions. It starts to, because something is seen, something the system is somehow recognized, oh, it's one of those, here we go again, uh-huh, well, you know, oof. and one makes less of it. So these wavering, I mean, of, of 
feelings and sensations, they tend to waver and inconstant, and then they subside altogether. The wavering, the flickering of thought, that kind of bubbles and surges, and then one thought churns up and dies down, another one comes up. In that, we are recognizing there is no firm ground here. There's nothing, essentially, that one can take into this third level of conditionality, which is the sense of self. I am. You can't take a stand on it. Now, unfortunately, um, what is one of the big difficulties of Dharma practice, of any religious practice, is that one tends to, without again, without thinking this way, um, make the aims of that practice another condition. You know, it held in this subtle sense, the third sense, sense of one's value. So you get the feeling, I should be calm, because calm is one of the things that are talked about. I should you know, have samadhi, because samadhi is one of the things that comes as a result of this practice. Um, supposed to realize nibbana, you know, supposed to be a result of the practice. No clinging, you know, a result of the practice. Impeccable virtue, it's all with the practice. Goodness me. <laughs> so, you know, the more you kind of chalk up these, these great values and stick them in that conditioned category of what I'm supposed to be, then these, these things, actually quite lovely expressions of things that should inspire us, become oppressions for us because we're actually putting them in the place of, con- of you know, our conditioned reality box. You know, our I am box, what I'm supposed to be box. And then these things become terrible um, oppressors. So, you know, we could say Nibbana is the unconditioned, but you don't, you don't know what that really means. You know, we can only think things in terms of... Con- you know, when we think of something, that, that is a conditioned experience. You know, the very act of conceiving it brings it into mind, it becomes a conditioned experience. And then it's, it's held in this subtle level of, you know, I am or what I should be. And then it becomes not a realization, but a view. And a view the Buddha points out on many occasions is one of the worst things to hold on to a view because <laughs> it, it it seems permanent it seems satisfactory and it seems self this is what I should be this is the end, this is the result this is the big thing, this is definitely what I should have or should be and it you know it means I've, I've finally succeeded I'm an okay person you know um, and in that, you know, goes, you know, all the, all, you know, all the great ideas. Uh, but they're held in the wrong place. So instead of emptying out that box, that subtle but most powerful box of conditionality, we fill it up with, with new things. So we create a new millstone to hang around our neck, apart from the one we've got already. <laughs> so, 
So now you have two millstones. <laughs> Where really the, the aim in, in a laying conditions is actually, you know, is we can what when we talk about the cessation of conditions, do you think you can stop the body seeing things, hearing things, touching things? Do you think you can stop sickness and uh, energy changes? What do you think it's being referred to here? It's really the, the most important category to empty out and cease is the third one. In fact, it's the only one that really counts is this the sense of I am. Um, this sense of um, one's presence, if you like, in a, in both in a mental sense and a bodily sense. And so this, in a, this is the aim of Dharma practice. Not the other two, we just, you know, you, you just, they, they are things, the other levels uh, of conditionality are things you, you adjust, you bear with, um, you contemplate, you know, but you, you, they're not really th- the big thing. You can only go so far with that that stuff, including this this um, relatively subtle level of you know, both bodily energy, bodily presence, and mental behaviour, thoughts, emotions, moods. And these two become, you know, big things because when we <coughs> when we meditate, then this these areas particularly are the ones that we um, we um, we mollify, we calm, we allay, and so forth. So that's what a lot of meditation practice is about. It's about you know calming the emotions quietening, seeing through, um, you know, making the body feel bright, uh, steady, calm, and so on. And this is all great, well and good, you know. But um, it's only, it only does that. It only gets to feeling relatively good. It doesn't get any further than that. This is what we do with, in samadhi. And if we are trying to do that without having... Without an, without having really taken refuge, um, then we're missing the point. So the most because imp- you don't it's very difficult to do it anyway unless you're extremely willful and able to suppress things. And eventually, you know, this this third category of conditions can remain relatively untouched by samadhi. You know, we, we have a nice sense of being a successful person, a good meditator, and you know, that's as far as it goes. It doesn't empty out the box altogether, which is what the panya faculties or development of wisdom through insight is about. So you've got to see the meditation exercises in the right light. And if the samadhi is not, you know, if you can't do that, then this is not 
something wrong with you as a person, don't put it into your third box. You know, it just means that the conditions have not been generated to support it. It's not something that you know particular personalities can do and other personalities can't do. It's something that arises because the conditions are in place, and the conditions are the sense of of the uprightness of mind, upright right view, uprightness of view. And I feel that we can take this thing very mentally, but I do feel that we miss out on the fact that it's also something quite physical. You know, how can you take refuge physically? What is refuge mean about physically? Um, if you think of it, it's maybe just an idea or a belief that you ascribe to. Yeah, I love Buddha, so what? <laughs> No, the physical aspects of it really things something that are modelled by, particularly in, um, both in forest dharma practice, but I would say in all dharma practice, have to be physically lived out, which means that one actually um, holds one's body against the push of restlessness, or discomfort, or dis-ease, you know, or fear, or not feeling welcome, all that. You really feel it in your body and you hold your bodily presence against that, against the sense of being embarrassed or awkward or whatever. And this, of course, is what a lot of um, Dharma practice is about. I mean, in the forest tradition particularly, you know, being out there with the tigers, for example, a great, great example, uh, and just being, you know, feeling the body the adrenaline surging through the body, natural reaction of fear and terror, and just sitting there being with it, you know. And if the tigers don't finish you off, they get you to give a dumber talk, where even more adrenaline rushes through your system, more fear and terror. <laughs> you know, the tigers only, only eat you, you know. <laughs> Human beings do a lot worse than that. They remember you. <laughs> So it's, it's only actually physically embodying it is what, to my mind, is one of the bases whereby that, that refuge is, is strengthened and taken into a, a, like a real felt experience, not just a thought experience, but a felt experience. You really feel that something you, you embody. And if we look at this in, in, in more subtle ways, this is the sense of the physical uh, collectedness, the patience, the whole way of deportment, for example, that's modelled by um, training. Mm. At least, the, you know, training in, in um, for summoners, tra- training in that particular way. And it means also bringing one's body forward, like offering one's service, which is another aspect of that offering to serve the, the triple gem is a way in which you don't just think it, but you do it. You know, you physically do it. If it's uncomfortable, you still do it. You know, you, you offer your service. And that's another way of really embodying and li- living out the refuge. Um, and again, this, this is a big point in 
in in our way of training, you know, whereby the mind, well, you know, I'd say let's not be quiet, you know, be on my own, be tranquil, be quiet, and yeah, that's part of it. But also using things like the way we serve and help, this the sangha, and try at least to bear in mind uh, the you know the model of what is skillful behavior and service rather towards others in this Dhamma sphere, you know, working for the Dhamma, working for the Sangha. Whereby, where other times one might feel, well, why bother, you know, or not really interested, or it doesn't seem much in it for me, or it seems more kind of pointless, or just fiddly, or fussy. Uh, And the mind can certainly think that, but one wants to really approach it as a way of strengthening one's refuge by, by physically living it out and feeling, you know, with, with that right view. We're not here, we're not doing this to win favours you know, or to be, you know, head boy or head girl, you know, most smartest summer of the year, but in order to, you know, come to the right place in ourselves. And uh, that sense of relating to a sangha is part of that. I remember Ajahn Jan, when he was old, 70s or so, you know, they'd do the all-night sittings and he was, he was, he'd, been, he'd talk for about five hours or so. You know, you're talking to lay people all day. They, they just punish their teachers generally with just an immense amount of things they've got to do. So by the time he got to the all-night sitting, you know, he'd give his two or three-hour dhamma talk or whatever it was. You know, he had a tremendous amount of energy. But then always about midnight, he'd just he'd ask Sangha if he had permission if he could take a little nap for an hour or two. So it was kind of cute because nobody was going to say, well, no. But it was like that sense in which he was at least, you know, offering his conduct, you know, opening it up and saying, well, you know, I recognise that the real highest standard here is to is to say to you know to sit up all night and it looks like I don't think I can do it um, you know now I could just sneak off or I could say well I'm the big agile here I don't need to do that you know or something like that or I could say um, you know I respect the sangha and at the moment I'm using you as my expression of sangha the sangha really doesn't mean us literally but the kind of Aryan the noble standards and I want to say, feel that I have, you know, placed my own conduct in that light. You know, put my own conduct against the, what is the high standard, and said, well, you know, please, I can't make this. You know, so actually, still maintain that quality of, of uprightness in mind, even if, you know, your behaviour can't match up to it. I think that's a very, you know, it's maybe a small point, but it's quite a a good thing to, to, to bear in mind of how we embody that refuge when you know, physically we can't do it or you know, our, our systems are just not able to make it. So instead of feeling you know, you've got to be guilty about it or resentful or well, it's my business, nothing to do with you, you know, taking it aw- out of the purely human context of you know, behavior into more like the level of the Dhamma. You're actually trying to refer to the, the 
the Dhamma, the, 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 the triple gem, as a, as a refuge place in your own heart. Yeah. And you're using other people to help you, uh, give you a, a scenario to do that in. And this is what monasteries are about. You know, they are really theatres whereby we can use these various systems and relationships and roles to catalyze and hold up our internal refuge. Mm. We're using them in the right way rather than some sort of club you've got to join or a competitive situation where you're competing with other humans or and all the stuff that can happen around all that. So that's both embodying it and also you know, doing it with your body and also doing it with the, the mind. So in a way, being mindful of the mind is um, you know, the dynamic of experiencing the mind from the point of view of the refuge. Yeah. That is, we are contemplating mind, we're not taking a stand for it or against it. And it's like this now. Now that is in microcosm what, it, what you know, holding the refuge is about. Now, if the mind is very jumbled and upset and so forth, we're not saying, well, that's fine, that's great, but we're saying, this is the mind. Don't, don't take this into yourself. Don't make this into something more than that. Mm. And if, so that we don't go from a, don't go into a depressed or confused tonality, nor do we go into a nonchalant or lackadaisical, you know, Tonality, we have where you just think, well, it's really something to mind, so what? You know, where it gets all very, you lose the ability to really refer. You know, so you get a sense of sinking, dropping, dropping the practice and sinking, and then, oh, well, okay, let's go an hour or two and try and pick it up again. Which, you know, on a human level, maybe, okay, uh, it's better to do that than go nuts, obviously. Uh, or get really upset, but to ideally to be able to ra- maintain the quality of, of of awareness and recognizing that when we when we do that, when we actually do maintain our refuge point, and we are mindful of mental behaviour, the flow of thoughts and emotions and feelings, the surge of it, um, and we don't do the other, like block or run away. What tends to occur is there is a response gets kindled by itself, just by being there, which is a response of, say, maybe compassion, or wisdom, or clarity. You get a sense of some spaciousness there, oh, it's this, it's happening, Um, you know, mm -hmm. Um, there's some sense of some empathy, oh, you know, it's a bit of a mess here, this is, and there's some um, some clarity. You know, this is uh, it's like this now. It's like this now. It's like this. and it seems to be we can actually investigate. It seems to be based upon this particular sensation, on this particular memory, on this particular. So 
in meditation it's not that you should never think. No. So, yeah. Well, the thoughts are essentially a problem in themselves, but the you can thoughts can teach you a lot if you can approach them from the point of view of, of refuge, of mindfulness. Because instead of then holding on to the topics or getting into the agitation on the topics, that vantage point is your way of looking more purely at the at the tone of it, the fear, the fearfulness, the tenseness, the restlessness, the agitation, the swelling up, the sinking down, you know, the kind of the mood, the mood of it all. And that shift, just that shift of, of focus, tends to catalyze a more appropriate response than if we're just getting frustrated by the silly thoughts we're having. Because you're getting into what are like more core energies of the mind. And um, because it doesn't have the stories to it, it seems less oneself and more something that's happening to you. Um, so one of the ways in which the Buddha sometimes talked about dealing with thoughts was called asati, which means unmindfulness, but roughly speaking. So, so one of the ways of dealing with confusion or disturbing thoughts is to not be mindful of them or asati, develop asati. Now, th- we may think, oh, well, that means be, don't be mindful. But no, it doesn't really mean that. It means don't fo- put your, your, your mindfulness as the ability to bear something in mind. So don't keep bearing in mind this particular thought, but instead bear in mind the mind. So thought is really only a process that occurs in mind. So we forget the topic. You know. We put it aside. We go into a soft focus around that topic. You know, the, why this person really irritates me and drives me nuts. You know, and you can think all etch in all the details of why he or she is this, that, and the other. What you can do about it, and then, then all that. Or you can go into something a little soft and saying, "There's some, you know, some anger here." You know, or even softer than that, "There's a lot of energy here." And so that ability to, to not bear a topic in mind and then be able to adjust your focus to a place where you can actually hold that without reacting, blocking, shifting, or getting into, oh, I can't, why am I like this state? I mean, it just feels like energy running through. Um, so th- uh, and then we can really see this wavering, inconstant, nature of this mental process, the selfless nature of it, and that it doesn't nothing you can rely on in the mental process, in the thinking process, in the emotional process, nothing you can really rely on or um, make permanent or real or solid or of you know ultimate value. It doesn't mean to be dismissed, but we say you can't take your make it your refuge. This is, an, this is something we learn not through the absence of emotions and thoughts but through handling their <coughs> presence. So this is an extremely significant uh, point. You know, maybe the way, one of the most important points we, ever, we can ever make clear for ourselves in our practice. Now meditation techniques and systems are there to, to enable us to carry some of these things out. 
you know, to, to stay, to hold the uplifted mind, to stay in that state, stay at that particular level, to be able to exercise so we can adjust our attention so we can see into different layers of the experience that affect us, from the thinking to the emotional tones, the sheerly energetic quality of, a, of, a, of, the, of the thought process. You can see these different layers of it. So, you know, is, these are, this process of sati and samadhi is a very helpful one. But remembering that the, the aim of it is to be able to, to, to just to hold, um, to get that sense of holding unwa- uh, like an unwavering um, attentiveness around an object. So, you know, it can get lost if we actually expect that that process is going to give us you know, another, uh, some particular state that we can, you know, hold it, a nice state. I'd like to hold a nice state, you know, while I'm wavering attention, while I'm this load of rubbish. <laughs> you know, I'd like that. And, and that can happen, of course, you know. Well, so they say. And that's great, you know, and that, that can happen. But also, we have to be able to hold the rubbish, too. Uh, and not, perhaps we shouldn't use, use that term, because if you keep considering it's rubbish, you're not really holding it in the right way. But uh, hold it so that you can review with insight into the, the distortions and the, the um, agitations that cause us suffering. So whatever meditation system one uses, you know, using the breath, the body, you know, mantras or whatever. These are things that you, you build up and you recognize also that attention itself doesn't just get built up through saying, do it. You have to build it up through exercising uh, moment after moment, you know, the upright mind. So touch that. What is it? And then work on it, feel it out, explore it. So one both places one's attention onto onto an object, and also you, you evaluate it and explore it. You get a very full feeling for it. You know, if this is body, then which bit of the body? It's the arm, chest, whatever it is, the back, and then really going there and then really feeling it out. Not as mine. We've got all sorts of assumptions out, but you know the. the the heat of it, the fieriness of it, the tension of it, the tonality of it. And so you're really getting into to exploring it as it is. And sometimes this gets this process gets curtailed when we just think of meditation because we, we tend to get into this sense of hold it rigid until your mind quietens down. And actually, in reality, you know, the mind only quietens down when it's satisfied. So you have to often give it things to do, depending on what kind of mind you have. If your mind tends towards inactivity, often you've got to say, come on, let's do some work, you know, or play, get involved, tell me about it. Your mind is very restless, saying, well, don't run around there, just, just, just get onto this one. So it doesn't have to be calm so much as, as um, 
applied applied mentality sensing it, feeling it, considering it and so in, in that process then again if we, if we assume we shouldn't think then a meditation um, doesn't get, go very well be able to, to place one's you know, attention on a meditation object and, and work around it So sometimes just forget about meditating. Just say, well, how do you know you're breathing? You know, forget about meditating and say, how do you know you're walking? What does walking do? What does it feel like? What happens in your body when you walk? What happens to your neck when you walk? What happens to your chest when you walk? What happens to your shoulders? What happens to all the bits, all of it? How do you know you're walking? Are you there with it? You know? Or do you do two steps and then... And then how does that happen? You know? Perhaps your eyes are looking around. Well, try quieting the eyes. Try really, you know, as if you're walking on a on a six-inch wide board over a thousand-foot drop, or maybe a ten-foot drop, depending how paranoid you get. You know, you don't want to make something that's really terrifying. But something there's a sense of really be here with this. You know, so you can use your mind to create particular impressions that help your bodily presence to, to wake up. This is important. But you can do that with the mind. The mind has got immense resources and if it's restless and running around it probably means you're not actually giving it enough to do in the meditation. So being able to sustain mental visualizations, imaginations, impressions that, that work for you rather than the impressions and the visualizations that work against you, against the process. And so all this is done from the place of the mind, you know, having that sense of support, confidence, allowance to 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 find its way in, in, in the Dhamma practice. And again, if you get too immediately focused on techniques, the chances are that you can you can cut off your own your own needs, your own originality, your own spontaneity in terms of, of cultivation you know, by, by skipping the process, by not actually going through the process you know, as it should be done by involving yourself with your practice. Instead we can come at level you know, what I should achieve at the end of this and then try to get to that point you know, through a technique rather than say, well, you know, how do I get into my body? How do I feel out walking? How do I relate to, to thoughts and feelings? You know, is my, can I stay, can I find a refuge place within all this? Embodying it and feeling it in the heart and bringing it to, to, into action in terms of the way we apply ourselves. So this is the, the skills of one's intentionality, one's volition, one's aim, is to, to keep that aim you know, there, but very much you know, held, contained within holding up skillful states in the present moment, rather than acquiring um, 
wonderful states in the future. <laughs> you know, sublime states we've heard about in the future. Try just upholding the skillful state that you know in the present, the skillful tone that you know in the present, called um, kusala supasampada, to uplift that which is skillful. Now that's that's where we place our effort. So it, it certainly is effort, but it's not, you know, shooting into the future. And there's a calm in that, a groundedness in that. I think this very phrase kusalasa upasampada is quite interesting because of course upasampada generally refers to the um, bhikkhu ordination, you know, being ordained. You know, which is a very powerful word. It's rather like you know when you you're being initiated or accepted into the sangha. It's quite a powerful word, and and yet really the most important thing is to be ordained into skillfulness. <laughs> you know, to be initiated into skillfulness into the, into the bright. You know, and the conventional forms are as they are. You know. But the most important ordination is the ordination to the into kusala, skillfulness, and this is what sangha means in its most appropriate terminology for our practice is the is the place of skillfulness, and this is the place to really seek your ordination, because <laughs> it's the one that that will last and do you good when all the monasteries in the world fall down, Every, all the monks sit around watching tea, or drinking, watching TV, smoking cigarettes, <laughs> putting their money on the horses, doing gambling, you know. Won't be long now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> you know, it's for someone like you, when your refuge is really firm, then it's not shaken by, by these external things which are subject to change and decay. And this is the stream enterer, of course, someone who has unwavering, whose, whose refuge does not waver. And uh, um, to, to have the stream enterer, the first level of, of security, if you like, or uh, really connect, fully connected to Dhamma. Uh, and this itself is considered to be one has experienced nibbana. One has experienced the empty box um, through that, through allowing these conditioned forces to arise, and they're passing. It's momentary emptying, and this is the first. It's called the first glimpse, or the first intuition, or the first sense of what what nibbana really, how it's experienced. Mm. 